Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hanson. If you've listened before, welcome back. And if you're new to the podcast, thanks for giving it a try. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm super good and psyched about what's in the grab bag. Yeah, today we're going to be opening up the mailbag once again and answering some questions from our listeners. These were all questions that were submitted through our Patreon, email, or on Instagram or YouTube. And if you'd like to have a question answered on the show, the best way to do that is by joining our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And you can also email me at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. So we got a bunch of questions. We got more good questions than we could possibly answer in one episode. There will be future mailbags. So there's a reasonable chance that if you don't have an answer on this one, you might have an answer on a later one. And just as always, thanks so much for sending in such thoughtful questions. We just get amazing questions from listeners. So let's start with our first question. I've been on the personal growth journey for a few years now. I was home for the holidays late last year, and in returning to that familiar environment, I found myself regularly annoyed by the behavior of other people. Man, can't we all empathize? And I've started to wonder if my being more mindful, patient, compassionate, and so on is actually making me, Dad, more repressed. I became aware of this repeating cycle where I have an immediate emotional response to someone else's problematic behavior. But then my practice kicks in, and I hold myself back from expressing that immediate anger or hurt or so on. And I'm starting to feel like my pursuit of being more zen and centered is actually just leading to me repressing my emotions or making it easier for other people to take up an unfairly large slice of the pie. I don't think that's healthy long term. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts. So what do you think about this, Dad? I think it's an incredibly interesting and great question. Yeah. So a few observations about it. One is I relate. I can yeah, really track that, you know, including uh, kind of in my own history, my own journey of practice. And second, a couple of distinctions. As we become more aware of ourselves and also more regulated, the point is you've made often is that it's about having freedom and less suffering, greater well-being, and more effectiveness. So the point is not to suppress our quote unquote negative reactions to people while we while we get all mellow and zen like with them, <laughs> right? Because what might be happening here in this case is an understandable little bit of maneuvering inside the mind in which there maybe is a certain pushing down of those reactions as we be more compassionate and mindful with people. So the art is both to allow your reactions to be there, to really create a lot of spaciousness for them. That's the most important thing, while being appropriate with other people, not lashing out as the seconds tick by and you kind of find your way back to center after your immediate reactivity, beginning to look at the world through their eyes, those sorts of things. But meanwhile, yes, indeed, first and foremost, we have to be with what's there. I kind of joke that uh, the mind is, it's not like a flush toilet. It's more like a septic <laughs> tank. So it's not that that stuff goes away where <laughs> it needs to be processed out. I guess that would be my first comment. I got a couple more, but I wonder what you think so far. 
Yeah, well, I was, I, I mean, you were just making me think about those medieval castles that have like the oh, holes in the side of the wall where they would just throw the refuse. But anyways, that's where my mind just went. Um, <laughs> more to the point of the question. Totally agree with you. The goal of practice generally is to just make us more free, right? Yeah. And that includes being free to choose our behavior and our responses. So what I what I would ask this person, and spoilers, I actually did ask this person. We had a little Patreon like message back and forth. Yeah. Is basically, well, do you feel free in that choice? And there are a lot of different choices. You could totally make a thoughtful choice to regulate your emotions and be the person inside of the group who is capable of bearing some additional distress or is the person who is capable of having the water slide off of your back of that interaction. And maybe you make a thoughtful assessment that the other people in your family system right now are not capable of doing that. And so you just make that choice, just eyes wide open. It's not your preference, but you go, hey, you know, I can do this. And that's a good capacity to have. But what this question is speaking to is something that absolutely happens in group situations. I've been in some of them myself, where when you're the person in a group who has the ability to regulate your emotions or has the ability to take the high road or whatever and other people don't, you do end up doing a disproportionate amount of the emotional labor sometimes. Yeah. And like, it's great to have those abilities, but the whole point of those abilities is to give you that freedom. So if this person is looking at it and going, hey, I want to express my emotions more, and is then feeling a block to that emotional expression inside of themselves, well, that's a new place of practice, right? Your practice isn't creating that block. Your practice has revealed that there is a new block now in front of you that like maybe is your current place of practice. Does that kind of make sense, Dad? Oh, tons. And it is true that as individuals become better listeners, mm -hmm. other people often fill that space yeah, with more... Totally broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And then you have to kind of manage that over time, including reminding yourself to stand up for yourself as appropriate. And, and sometimes you find yourself just being gravitated toward different kinds of people over time with whom there's more of that healthy reciprocity, healthy give and take between you. But the, the thing I want to finish with here is the poignant fact mm -hmm. that there's a normal distribution of just about everything. There's a distribution of height, there's a distribution of weight, there's a distribution of mindfulness, a distribution of emotional intelligence, social intelligence. There's a distribution. And the truth is, the fact is, as you start moving more out onto the tail of the curve yourself, as you develop greater mindfulness, compassion, emotional intelligence, or other inner skills, as you start moving more and more out on the tail of the curve, there are fewer and fewer people out there with you. Now, obviously, it's extremely easy to fall into the pitfalls of arrogance and elitism and snobbery and disdain and so forth about this. And I'm, I'm really speaking against that. I'm just referring to the objective fact. And then how do you deal with that objective fact? How do you live with that and appreciate that and benefit from that without falling into the pitfalls of judgmentalness and snobbery. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah, well, I think that's a whole episode that we could totally do. I don't want to spend too long on each of these questions because we've yeah. got quite a few of them. That being said, just to kind of nudge on what you're saying here a little tiny bit, I do agree with you in terms of, yes, there are, as you become more, I don't even know what the right language is skillful. here. <laughs> as you become more skillful inside of your mind, you're going to bump into fewer people who have developed those capabilities. That's that's. Like you said, that's objective reality. And more people who haven't yet. 
at the same time, I think that kind of the whole point of developing that skillfulness is to increase the number of people that you can be in positive relationship with, not to make it smaller and smaller over time, frankly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that distress tolerance is a, is a superpower. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the superpowers that we develop as we become more psychologically skillful, uh, as yeah. we become more resilient, as we wrote a whole book about. And a big part of that is about increasing the range of circumstances within which you are comfortable. And those circumstances include a lot of other people who maybe are not the most skillful humans on the on the face of the planet, but you just become a little bit more able to communicate things in a way that can be received by them, to frame their behavior as not being about you, but being in front of you, if that makes sense, and just a wide variety of other things. So I, I guess that that's mostly what I would say about that. Yeah. Future conversation. Yeah, yeah, maybe more for an actual episode on this. But yeah. okay, I'm going to go to the next question. Do age gaps in relationships matter? I'm a woman in my mid to late 20s, and I'm currently dating somebody 16 years older than me. I feel more cared for than I ever have in a relationship before. Our relationship didn't start conventionally. I was an employee at the job I work at, and he was my manager. It's almost been a year now, and it feels like it's going great. I feel like I could potentially marry this guy. Just wondering what your thoughts are on this kind of situation. Right. Well, <laughs> it's a rich text. It's a rich text for sure. Yeah. I have known situations in which there was a significant asymmetry from the beginning in maybe the power or the status or the age of the different mm. people. I'm just going to flag right now that you listed those three in a row intertwining them. And I think that that's a really key point here. Power, status, age. Yeah. Intertwining as in they often co-relate with each they're, other. They're implicitly wrapped up in each other. And I think that, that that's that's a huge context for everything I suspect that you're about to get into here. And I've known situations in which the couple navigated that and was... It was a plus, not a minus, and they were great. And other situations where the initial differentials between them, which seemed initially complementary or not relevant, gradually accumulated in their consequence with time, including fast forward 40 years into the future, you know, let's say, you know, having a partner who's 16 years older than you. So it's, it's a something to think about. I don't have a rule about this at all. And I think sometimes people can be overly snippy <laughs> about their list of shoulds for right couples. And it also depends on what your couple's about. You know, we have this mm. ideal of soulmate, romantic love, and all the rest of that. And that's, that's an important basis for a relationship. And also there are circumstances. I think about the people who would get married to each other in the time of my father and certainly his father and father, mother and mother, in, in which people would come together in the West or in pioneer conditions because basically they were good enough. There was some shared value, some basic goodwill and attraction. And a lot it was like, I need someone to go ride a horse 50 miles to get a doctor if I break my leg in November in the blizzard. You know, kind of like that. You t so there are multiple considerations, in mm -hmm. including cultural ones. I think it's important to not be, like I said, snobby about it on the one hand. On the other hand, keep your eyes really wide open, especially if you're in the more subordinate position, if you're the one who is younger, if you were the one who was being supervised 
by that other one. If you are the one who is being therapized, that's a huge issue. That's something to really think about. And to really pay attention to any warning signs that even inadvertently, that person who is more privileged in terms of status, power, perhaps financially, might even unwittingly, you know, not out of bad intent, but unwittingly be taking advantage or just making presumptions based mm -hmm. on all that. Just finishing, I, I think a lot about Ta-Nehisi Coates' definition of privilege or a major aspect of it is not having to take something into account. If you come into the relationship with higher status, greater maturity, more money, there's a lot of stuff you don't have to take into account that someone does who's maybe younger, lower status, less money, less power. Totally agree with you. I've got friends and I know people who have really big differences in, in age between the people and it it all seems okay. It seems like everybody is there because they want to be. There are no abuses of power taking place. Everyone's happy getting their needs met. In that case, great. You know, good for you. But people have red flags around relationships with large age gaps because they tend to have significant power differentials between the members of the partnership. And that's really the issue. It's not so much the age difference, it's the power difference. Relationships are a series of exchanges, and that's not a super sexy way to talk about them. And yes, like the romantic love part of it is a is a beautiful part of a relationship. But really practically, you know, we give things to our partners and we expect things in return from them. And healthy relationships are normally ones, at least in my experience, where that balance of giving and receiving is both relatively equal and really in the background of the relationship. It's not really foregrounded in it. It just kind of happens. You sort of naturally fall into some processes where one person's a little better than the other person at these kinds of things. Maybe you even have formal conversations about it where you go, hey, you know, I'm really good at doing the taxes and you're really good at cooking the dinners. And so let's just kind of like break up our stuff in that way. Maybe that falls under traditional gender lines. Maybe it doesn't. It's all okay. But you can get into kind of problematic territory when there are very explicit trades being made between the partnerships for certain kinds of things. Like maybe you are, again, to use the traditional setup here, maybe you're essentially exchanging youth, vitality, attractiveness, sexuality for wealth, power, status, authority, whatever. And like, I think that if everybody's eyes are wide open about that and it's two consenting adults, like, all right, do your thing. But you do have to be aware that those are situations where you can start to run into some issues. So I guess what I would say for this person who sounds like they're in a, a pretty healthy situation, they feel pretty good about it, their needs feel pretty met, is to just make sure that you've done some of this evaluating and that you've asked some of these questions. And if you look at all of them and you're going, check, 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 no problem, hey, you know, good for you. Follow your happiness here. But I would just make sure that you're like you're doing the inquiry. Does that sound about right to you, Dad? Yeah. And I want to add something that might be a little provocative just very briefly, which is just because it looks like a stereotype doesn't mean it's a stereotype. Totally. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. And that's, that's a really interesting thing. And I think it's important for a couple to push back on those who would tend to slot you into their familiar stereotypes, their familiar storylines. Oh, younger woman, older man. Well, hello. I know what that's about. Actually, you don't. Shut up. You don't. Yeah. Listen, observe, have some respect and don't know mine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because you don't know. And you and I are stereotypically father and son. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a father-son <laughs> thing, Hanson and Anson. Hanson and son, I know what that's like. 
<laughs> well, really? <laughs> anyway, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, totally. Okay. Totally, totally. <laughs> no, All I right, think it's a great point, and I'm really glad that you threw it in at the end here, Dad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, our, our brains are organized <laughs> to be pattern-finding machines. Like, that's what we do. Yeah. And so it's natural to pursue those patterns and just apply them to everybody in a kind of blanket way. Yeah. And to be careful about, frankly, like falling into that. As it, you know, it's easy even to do in this kind of a context where we don't know the specific people involved. So we're just doing the pattern finding inside of our own minds about like, what's a version of this that's walked into your office that's led to some problems. Yeah. So maybe the flip side of that question, Dad, here is our third question. I've been in a relationship since I was young, and we've changed a lot as people over that time. How can couples who have been in a relationship since they were relatively young start to develop their individual sense of selves now as adults and maybe even become a bit less codependent? Well, there's so much in that. Yeah, I mean, big question. Well, I'm pausing because in a way it's such a big question and I really want to honor it and not stereotype the question. One thing that comes to me is that as we get to know ourselves individually better, we do tend to differentiate in a couple because in many, many ways, our own innards have a lot of uniqueness to them on the one mm -hmm. hand. Mm -hmm. And it's also true that as people get to know each other, get to know themselves with deepening self-awareness, they start tuning into an almost sacred kind of likeness with other beings. And so you, you both become more differentiated, individuated, and you have greater capacities for intimacy with each other through that kind of self-knowledge. Because one of the things that disrupts intimacy is that which is disowned within individuals and pushed away. It becomes almost like, I'm thinking of these uh, screens on stage and plays that get moved out or pulled back. It becomes a screen between oneself and others that which we disown within ourselves. So that's, that's kind of part one. Part two, obviously, is to make room for differences. Virginia Satir, who's someone I'd love to explore the work of in an episode, a legendary family therapist, really a pioneer. One of the more powerful things she emphasized in families and couples was the okayness of differences and making room for differences. And and not suppressing differences or punishing differences or being afraid of differences, but taking them into account. And that would be a second thing I think that's, that's really important. And then just to uh, share with each other, maybe my third suggestion would be to explore with each other your dreams for this life. Mm -hmm. Deep down inside, what do you really care about? What's important that's realistic? What can you make room for? And how can you support each other's dreams, even if they're different? from your own, but how can you do that? And getting that out on the table is just a beautiful thing to do. And, you know, I wish more long-term couples would do that, would actually just look newly almost. What do you really care about? What's your passion? What's your dream? And how can I back your play? Well, I think that's great, Dad. And what's coming up for me right now is relating to the other person as a process mm. as opposed to a single baked cake. Mm if that makes sense. Like we're all being baked all the time. Mm. And so there's this like this beautiful movement back and forth between appreciating the individual just as they are in the moment and also appreciating everything that you've been through together as a partnership. Like if you've if you've been this with this person for an extended period of time, you've gone through a lot. 
there's a lot of water under the bridge. And so you don't want to just like chuck it all away. But on the other hand, you're in relationship with this moment, like the person that exists in front of you this mm. moment. And as we get more and more water under the bridge, the backlog of all of that, you know, the reservoir that water is flowing into gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It takes up a more and more outsized position in, in our minds, right? And it can have a lot of gravitational pull to pull you away from the person that you're interacting with right now and kind of toward all of that other content. And I think there's a real place in a relationship, and I've done this a little bit in my relationship with Elizabeth. We've definitely explored having some conversations that basically look like, what are the assumptions that I have about you now based on everything we've been through together? And how are those assumptions no longer true? Aha. Uh -huh. That's a wonderful, generative question. Yeah. Everything from like really granular stuff to, do you still like this kind of food? That uh -huh. I've just been assuming that you'd like for an extent. Maybe you just don't like that food anymore. Yeah, you yeah. know, and obviously that's mm -hmm. a very simplistic example, but you can kind of use that as a as a framework for exploring ideas or thoughts or preferences, the way that you want things to look inside of the partnership. And to not to not interrogate people or to hold them excessively accountable for their views in the past if those views have changed over time. Mm -hmm. Because I know in myself that there's sometimes a tendency, and maybe this is true for other people listening as well, to be like, well, you said that in the past, and I did all of this efforting in the past to give you the thing that you really wanted, and now you say you no longer want it? Like, what's up with that, right? But I, that's not a great way to hold a relationship in terms of like valuing its health long-term and to instead allow your assumptions to change alongside the person that you're with. You know, I, I know you've probably got three or four books in mind that you're working on for us, and <laughs> one of them could be <laughs> potentially— your dream, Dad. <laughs> you, you dream that I have three or four books in mind. Uh, you know, one of them could be like <laughs> 10 questions for couples for oh, yeah, uh, yeah. a long yeah. and happy relationship, you know. And one of the Love 10 it. questions is, you know, how have you changed in ways I'm not taking into account or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just That's like the reevaluating of assumptions. A great book idea. If you're listening and you want to write that book, you are you are welcome to steal it. You know, we may or may not get around to it one day. And I won't. You might. Yeah, yeah. And either way, yeah, just some version of like, what are the assumptions that we're making? And how yeah. can we keep on updating those assumptions? Because again, like the more time that you spend with a person, the more assumptions about them you're going to have. And yeah, a lot of those assumptions will be right. Just like make sure that you're clearing out the decks every once in a while of the assumptions that might have just really changed over time. Okay, I want to ask you about this, Dad. This is, I think, right in your wheelhouse here. I'm interested in your take on personal responsibility. I'm a therapist, and I've come to look at my clients through a lens of what happened to you. And on the podcast, you often talk about how our behaviors are largely a product of the conscious and unconscious choices we make due to our genetics childhood experiences, environment, education, social class, trauma history, and so on. If that's the case, how culpable is anyone for their behavior, their deeds and misdeeds? I mean, it's a classic philosophical question yeah, right. for starters. Yeah. Yeah. Reflecting on it, I'll, I'll speak for myself personally. Maybe that's a way in that would be relatively grounded in what could spin out quickly in a kind of like sophomore dorm room. Whoa, man, it's like really <laughs> infinite, <laughs> you know, kind of conversation. So boom, for me, two things seem simultaneously true, paradoxically. On the one hand, the 
unfolding of the Big Bang universe, moment after moment, seems to be a mainly deterministic process, if not entirely so. And maybe there's sort of a certain amount of quantum instability at the underlying ground level. But, you know, when, as soon as you start moving up to the level of individual protons, let alone atoms and molecules and stuff, you're into a more Newtonian kind of clockwork unfolding. Okay. And from a wisdom perspective that's close to me, early Buddhism, there's, including all Buddhism, actually, there's a recognition of the ways in which reality is a single tissue in which there are an enormous, extraordinary quantity of processes occurring. I think of it as sort of like ripples within ripples within ripples within ripples in the river of time. Eddies within eddies within eddies. And, you know, love the eddy, be the stream. So it's helpful, actually, to recognize the existent emptiness of all phenomena, including choices that an individual made that are, have been very consequential. That's a very deep and useful perspective. And it's really helpful, especially at the beginning of and at the end of the second process, which is one in which you recognize a kind of stable eddy of identity and willfulness and executive function associated with your own particular body-mind process over time. And I can look back to being a kid, for example, and choosing to orient to situations in a certain way. When I was six years old, it was a very life-changing orientation. I realized that it was on me, it was really up to me to find happiness in this life, and I, I wasn't gonna find it in my family of origin, and I needed to look for it myself. That was a very fundamental choice there's a kind of continuity between that choice and then later choices in my teen years to withhold love from my mother, which I feel very pained about still, even though she's passed away for about 15 years now. There is a lot of evolutionary basis as well for the naturalness of us taking more responsibility and wanting others to do the same as a fundamental basis of living together effectively as tool-making hominids and then human hunter-gatherers. So it's normal to need to go through a process of looking at your own part in the matter. That's the second thing I'm describing. And so when you look at your own part in the matter, if you're willing to look freely and fully at your own part of the matter, that enables you to see what is not your part in the matter, your genetics, the impact of other people, the understandable consequences of childhood trauma experiences, the day-to-day -day grinding weight of culture and society that may well be biased against you. And each day you're swimming upstream. You know, just to really see the totality of all that. And so in that, for me, in the second process, it's actually really important to claim agency, one of your favorite topics. And with agency is responsibility. I made choices, you know, when you, you know, were a teenager to like to get mad and to dump my anger in ways that I thoroughly regret to this day. I also made other choices to, you know, go back to grad school, get a PhD, work hard, stay out of trouble, and build a business that worked out, has had benefits in it. So, you know, so it's it's important, I think, in the second way of looking at things to actually acknowledge agency and to see the ways in which your own agency is 
one of thousands of factors, you know, amidst many other factors. Claim yeah. responsibility for yeah. your ripple in the stream and then do what you can in terms of making amends for your mistakes and feeling healthy remorse and taking a better path going forward. So both of these together. And then after you've done that, it's especially useful to go back to that first perspective of the wisdom perspective of maybe I'll summarize it with this beautiful teaching from Sri Nisargada Maharaj has said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And between these two banks, the river of my life flows. I love that quote. It's actually one of my favorite quotes. The premise of this podcast, to a degree, is that we have some free will. That's that's the premise that we're right. operating under. That might be wrong. That might be right. It's a useful that's our premise. Illusion. <laughs> it's a useful premise, you know, because a lot of this stuff, you know, there's a line that I ran into once, which is that determinism is very scientifically interesting, but it's not very practically useful. There are some interesting arguments against determinism. You named one dad about quantum mechanics and quantum instability. And at the same time, I want to flag that self-help these days is absolutely notorious for misusing quantum physics in the pursuit of trying to justify things that have nothing to do with quantum physics. So I want to step very gingerly there. To me, kind of moonwalking away from determinism and making this about like what's practically useful for us as people. It's to A, appreciate the enormous impact of all of the factors that the person named in their question. And to B, allow those factors to act more as a plausible range of outcomes for a person than as a there it was only ever one option for them. I have a range of outcomes in my life. I think often of this moment, which was actually one of the most high-impact moments of my in my life, looking back over it, where I was 18 years old, was at the end of my senior year of high school. And I was, I was pretty bummed out. Uh, you know, it was a grim time in young Forrest's life. And my sister came to me and said, hey, Forrest, do you want to go to a dance class? And she said this to me because I had mentioned offhanded at some point earlier in my life, hey, it would be kind of fun to learn how to dance at some point. This was probably years ago and she was looking for something to do with me. And I went to a dance class. I said yes. And saying yes in that moment actually set the course for the rest of my life, which is wild to think about. I would not be with my partner that I am with right now if I did not start dancing. We probably wouldn't be doing this podcast together if I didn't start dancing. I wouldn't have engaged in my major hobby if I didn't start dancing. You know, like huge impact over the course of my life. I could have said no. I totally could have said no. I think that if I had been asked that question 18 months earlier, I would have said no. That's a range of outcomes. That's what it looks like. Wow. And so I think that we have agency within that range. But our circumstances establish our range. You know, there are people who come from infinitely less privileged circumstances than I do who are dealing with far more constrained ranges of outcomes than I am due to the fact that they were discriminated against or uh, systemically abused or that they just come from a part of the world where being a being a, a, a wellness podcast, geez, by virtue of being your kid, you know, would I be a wellness podcast host if I weren't your kid? No. It changed my range of outcomes. And so I think the, the huge takeaway at like the big picture level is to build systems that have an appreciation of all of the stuff we're talking about today. Like think about if, if everyone had a real appreciation that we were the result of thousands of causes and conditions upstream from us, how that would cause people to think about things like the incarceration system 
or our approach to economics broadly, or how we think about mental health issues, or how we deal with housing, you know, whatever. It would just totally change how we approach these systems. And so for me, that's like the big, big picture takeaway. And, you know, that influences a lot of things. That influences how I vote. I, I sort of rambled a lot there, but I've just been been thinking about this topic a lot. And I guess I had a lot to get off my chest. What do you think, Dad? I'm glad you learned to dance, and I <laughs> totally love your politics. Do you think that we checked all the boxes there that we're there to check? Enough for now. Great. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you like Being Well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. So let's just move on to our next question then, which is, I struggle with defining my self-worth through my success at work or other forms of accomplishment. I also still seem to hold the belief that a lot of self-judgment 
is necessary for my improvement. Even though I now see that this can be problematic, self-acceptance is elusive for me. Any tips? I can offer a lifetime of struggle with this question. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Personally relevant right here. I love that. A few headlines. One headline is to make a distinction between self-worth and self-esteem. The person referred to self-worth but spoke of a certain amount of things that have to do with self-esteem, by which I mean self-esteem kind of is in a broad way is essentially a kind of externalized third-person perspective on yourself in which you're rating yourself in terms of various attributes and esteeming yourself because you're scoring highly on those attributes, accurately, we hope. And they could be good attributes, including certain virtue attributes, such as making efforts over time, being patient, you know, being caring toward others, and so forth. Self-worth is more of a feeling from the inside. It's more rooted in a first-person perspective from the inside out that has to do just with a basic sense of all rightness as the being you are with a fundamental appreciation of yourself as who you already are that often reaches down into a kind of underlying sense of an inherent innate goodness, wakefulness, lovingness, wisdom in every being, including yourself. Okay. So I've known a lot of people who had high self-esteem. They walked into my office. They could give me a master's thesis on all their accomplishments, but deep down inside felt bad about themselves. So self-worth is really the prize. Point one. Point two, we can accumulate a greater sense of self-worth by appreciating our accomplishments and the results we achieve in the world. And through the repeated internalization of recognizing our own accomplishments and, and feeling successful in, in appropriate ways as a result, as well as internalizing the appreciation of others, acknowledgments of others, the friendliness of others, the lovingness of others, all of which affirm our worth as a being. That internalization is really, really, really important. And my hunch about this person, if I could give you the person one counsel, would be to take at least three minutes a day, 180 seconds, but 180 real seconds slowing down to let the sense of worth sink into you as you move through your day based on one thing or another. Recognizing your own goodness and now you interacted with somebody, slowing down to take in that you were successful and virtuous and effortful and motivated and diligent, et cetera, with various successes at work, acknowledgments of others, slow down to take it in. That's the one thing you can do that will make a really big difference. And then the last thing I'll just add is to distinguish between self-guidance and self-criticism. There's a place for self-guidance, for recognizing the distinction between ideal and actual, you know, between standard and result, between goal and, you know, what actually occurred. Yeah, learn from that and be real with yourself about it. Be discerning about that. Also recognize when you hit the target, guiding yourself like a good coach, a good friend, a good mentor, a good parent, a good boss, guiding yourself. That's totally different from beating yourself up for falling short yet again. And be really careful about the internalization of voices from various cultures and family systems that are maybe well-intended, but the internalization is almost, is very negative. 
you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you're less than this. Why are you so fat? Why are you so skinny? That outfit looks terrible. What are you doing? Why don't you call? <laughs> All that. You know, try to get that out of your head and just zero in on what's healthy self-guidance, disidentifying from and disengaging from unhealthy self-criticism. And if I could, I just wanted to add one last thing about the exact thing that the questioner said, which is, I struggle with defining my self-worth through my success at work or other forms of accomplishment. And something that I've learned over a long career that has accomplished a fair amount in some areas and not in others is that so many of the factors that determine whether an accomplishment occurs are totally outside of your hands. And if you don't have the power to make it be so, you don't have the responsibility if it doesn't become so. It's out of your hands. What's in your hands is what you do yourself. And that's where we can judge ourselves appropriately, not in a harshly self-critical way, but in, an, in a discerning and self-guiding way. So mm. for me, there are really three key questions in terms of the intrinsic values to fulfill in how we go about the process of going about accomplishing things. One, do we make efforts, sincere efforts along the way? Do we wake up? Do we do a, a good day's worth of work? Or are we kind of slackers, procrastinators, and we just don't work very hard at it? Do you make real efforts? Second, do you bring your whole heart to it? Are you good-hearted about it? Are you trying to make something better rather than worse? Do you come from love deep down inside or something close to it? Good-heartedness. And third, do you learn along the way? Do you have a learning curve? Do you grow from your mistakes? Do you grow from your successes? So for me, those are the big three. Effort, good-heartedness, and learning. And if you can tick those boxes, whatever the score is at the end of the day, you win some, you lose some, you get five stars, you get one star, whatever. Most of that's just out of your hands. And where you can go to bed and feel good about yourself is that today, today, did you work hard, right? Did you bring your heart to it? And did you learn something along the way? Yeah, well, I think you basically nailed that, Dad. So I'm not going to spend too much time here in giving a response, but <laughs> just to flag maybe one part of it. One of the big lies that our brain tells us and you know, the culture that we're a part of is a big part of this as well, of course, is that if we just achieve the thing, then we will finally feel good. And that's just not true most of the time, at least in my experience. Like I have so many friends, again, referring to dancing, who grind and grind and grind and grind to receive a certain placement at the next dance contest or whatever. And they receive that placement and then they're like, oh, it was all right. Yeah. But along the way, if they don't receive that placement, oh my God, they feel awful about themselves. Yeah. So things are just so disproportionately yeah. weighted toward the pain of not accomplishing versus the joy of accomplishing. And so accomplishment itself becomes a kind of a kind of treadmill where you're constantly grinding for the next accomplishment, but the rewards of that accomplishment are, are really quite questionable. And I've experienced in my own life, I can feel immensely accomplished from making a good pot of coffee in the morning. It took me five minutes. And I can feel totally blah about an edition of the Patreon notes that I spent 10 hours on. So your feeling of accomplishment is really pretty decoupled from your effort. 
And, and that's a really interesting thing to explore in life. Like, how can we feel increasingly accomplished just for being or just for doing things in a thoughtful way, as opposed to being so obsessed with our outcomes, which, as you were highlighting there, Dad, are, are by and large, you know, only loosely correlated with the amount of effort that we put into something. So, okay, I think that we have time for maybe one more here. So here we go. For those of us with histories of trauma that leave us feeling like we are not fulfilling our potential if we don't achieve more, how can we differentiate between what is a true, authentic desire and what is an impulse driven by the fear of never measuring up? Or put another way, is this inner pulling toward doing more coming from a genuine want, my genuine wants? Or is it just my trauma brain always finding a way to make me feel like I'm not good enough or not doing enough? Really interesting question. Oh, yeah. And even for people without noted yeah. trauma, like I would not describe myself as, as someone who had trauma in his childhood, although there was a, a lot of unhappiness. So a couple of distinctions that I've found really, really helpful personally. One is to feel the difference and to start to differentiate motivations. Like the same motivations can lead toward the same goal, but the motivations are very different. And the experience along the way feels very different, even if you're pursuing the same goal. Okay. So are you motivated toward the goal because you feel attracted to the positive or because you're trying to avoid or move away from the negative? In other words, is there a carrot in front of you that's drawing you onward, or is there a stick behind you that you're trying to get away from? And generally, better motivations are to be drawn toward the carrot in front of you rather than the fear of the stick behind you. That's one. Two, second distinction is, would you do this if no one were watching? Would you do this if there were no audience at all, including an internalized audience? or to put it in a certain language of object relations, a notion in psychology in which there's typically a frames of, of relating models, paradigms of relating scripts, in which there's sort of the self and world, self and other, self and group, self and Bob, self and Mary, et cetera. Would you be drawn towards something if you were not object referenced at all? The other is the object. If you were not other referenced at all, would you still be inclined to make your offering in this particular way, to actualize your abilities in this particular way, to render this contribution, this service, to write that song, even if no one listens to it? So those, to me, are two really useful questions. The more that you're moving toward the carrot, the better, and the more that you're intrinsically motivated, regardless of any externalized audience, the better. Though Those are not better. It's more like indicators. The more likely that it's driven yeah. by something inside of you. Yeah, yeah totally. Exactly totally. right. Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that for me, what I keep on coming back to is, does it feel pain motivated? Hmm. That's not to say that you can't have useful goals that are to an extent motivated out of a desire to avoid pain or motivated because you feel like someone's behind you kind of cracking the whip. There have been times in my life where I needed to crack the whip on myself to get myself moving in the direction I needed to go. But I don't know. I just think that there's like a different, a different tone. And I think that a lot of it gets down to self-criticism, mm -hmm. like how much of it is being motivated by harsh self-criticism to kind of return to the previous question. A lot of the time when I think about people 
friends of mine who have had a difficult past, who do have a bit of a trauma history and do have that motivation to accomplish as a kind of pushing back against it or as a way to find validation, they describe it as being motivated often by intense self-criticism and like what it says about me if I don't do this thing. Yeah. And that to me is a big indicator. In this question is so much rich stuff. So I'm thinking of several nuances here. So let's let's imagine a particular goal. Let's say someone mm-hmm. is thinking, you know, do I want to go to grad school or do I want to get an advanced license in something or do I want to let's say get a business off the ground? There's a specific goal. Okay? So then they're asking themselves, gee, am I pursuing this goal at some cost because I'm coming out of a deficit model in which I don't feel like I'm good enough and I've got to prove myself yet again to others and I'm exhausted? Or does there something, is there something deep inside me that naturally just likes this goal and thinks it would be pretty cool, recognizing there's some cost to it. It'll be hard work a fair amount. Sometimes I won't be really happy about it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to be really glad I did it. Okay, great. So one thing, first nuance is when you look inside, is there joy? Is there delight? Is there passion for the goal? Is there a sense of, wow, enthusiasm about it, right? Or is there mainly like grim, plotting, determination, or dread of falling short? Yeah, well, it's it's right there in the question, right? Like there's the phrase, the, the fear of never measuring up. Yeah. So do you do you feel fear motivated is maybe kind of a simplistic way to way to look at it, but but that has a feeling associated with it for sure. Yeah, exactly. And this person is trying to sort out yeah. what's the which motivation, which voice should I listen to or why am I doing this? It's it's good, it's appropriate. So one is to differentiate between those two feelings and motivations, you know, and the more that it's dread saturated or fear oriented, hmm, that's kind of that's one clue. Second, it's really possible, and this sometimes happens, that the truth is you've got both motivations running. One part of you, it's not entirely enlightened. It's still (laughs) seeking that A. You know, you still want that approval. You're still trying to join the cool kids. You still want to be with the top table in the front of the room. You want a seat at that top table. And you're mad about not being included sharing some of my personal neurotic history here. Uh, you know, all that. <laughs> but alongside it, alongside it, like, okay, thank you for sharing. You can include all those parts yourself. You bow to them. But alongside that is a genuine movement to actualize yourself in some way, to express mm-hmm. your capabilities, to, to run with the big dogs because you feel like you can run with the mm-hmm. big dogs. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. might be actually a really pretty fast big dog. And you want to find out, you know, and and you're interested in that. And even though both motivations are present, I think of this as the two horses problem. You've got the wisdom horse and the neurotic horse. But the truth is they're both going down the same trail. So it's it's kind of okay. Just don't, just over time, increasingly try to have the center of gravity of your being seated on the wisdom horse rather than the neurotic horse over time. Yes, yes, love that. Love that metaphor. This is just reminding me of my conversation recently with Stephanie Fu, who wrote the book, What My Bones Know, which is a great book about complex PTSD. She went through these very intense experiences as a young person of neglect and abuse and, and just like very intense backstory. And it's a memoir about that. It's a beautiful book. It's behind me if you're watching right now. Strongly recommend it. And I had a great time talking with her. And 
One of the things that she emphasizes inside of the book is that there is so much weight in the discourse put on the ways in which painful experiences mess people up and make them essentially vulnerable and fragile. That's the way it's presented. But the truth is that like most of the things that happen to us come with a combination of things. Even if they are mostly bad things, there might be some secret superpowers that accompany them. Mm. For example, she talked about how she worked at NPR for a long period of time. And being a producer at NPR, turns out it was really useful to be somebody who had a profound fear of missing a deadline inside of that context, you know? So like, was that perfectly healthy? No, it was not perfectly healthy. But did it help her out in that circumstance? Yeah, Yeah, it did. And so I think that that just illustrates what you're saying here, Dad, about the two horses that are are both going down the same track, you know? It's like, Yeah. yeah, one of them's not perfectly healthy, but you know, in this particular circumstance... Hey, if it's if it's lending a little horsepower to the car, maybe it's okay. And the reality is that like most of us in the course of this lifetime are not going to unwind all of our neuroticism. Good point. We're just not going to do it. We're yeah. not going to do it. Things happen to us. They have a weight. They have a pressure on us. That's okay. That's life. Life is in large part about becoming, I, I love this phrase, a normal neurotic. <laughs> You know, a normal person with some problems that you kind of learn how to deal with in the course of an everyday life. And increasingly, you find ways to either get rid of those problems, ideally, or more normally for most people, incorporate them in healthier ways into your existence. And if that's something that you have the space to do here, hey, that's a really useful way to funnel that neuroticism or funnel the impact maybe of what happened to a person. Does that sound about right, Dad? Do you have anything to add to that? I'd love to add one thing. And with your consent, because it's time urgent, I'd love to do one last question here. Oh, great. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the one point, when you know that there is a virtuous purpose, a wisdom purpose, let's say, in pursuing a goal, but still... There's a lot of neurotic hunger, feelings of inadequacy, seeking approval, wanting to finally get that seat in the front of the room and tick that box for yourself. There's a place sometimes to deliberately pursue a goal in which there's a lot of neurotic motivation for it so that you can feed that hunger inside in a way that truly satisfies it. Hmm. And so you deliberately go after certain kinds of accomplishments. You know that a fair amount of your motivation is that you're transferring in your desire from eighth grade for the neat kids to really like you. Okay. But still, you go for it because you're helping yourself. You're doing it to heal that part of yourself, to fulfill that longing once and for all. And so then when you do succeed at it, it's really, really, really important to take it in to help it sink in and even use the linking step in the heal process where you're associating positive to negative and so forth to help that current success finally to reach down into and fill that hole inside from that, that felt full of deficits when you were younger. My career kind of took off uh, in a certain different kind of way, late in my fifties related to when you wrote the, the book the run-up to the publication of Buddhist Brain a year or two Mm -hmm. before it and then afterward. And I'm unashamed about acknowledging that there were certain things that I went after 
because I knew that the accomplishment of them would help to heal some wounds and longings and emptinesses inside that went all the way back to being eight years old. You know, so it's really something to choose to do that. Yeah. It's an art to doing it out of wisdom and a, and a real replenishment of yourself rather than it having to be in the structure of yet one more fix, like an addictive fix that's metabolized in eight hours and then you need a new fix. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I know time's running out, but I would really love to do a question. And with your permission, I'll read it because it's kind of time urgent and I feel for the situation. It is. And I, I love that you uh, you suggested that just doing this right now, Dad, because you're right. It is a time-sensitive one. Okay. That's cool. That's super yeah. good. Thanks for letting me be in the yeah, driver's no, seat. Totally. Oh. Okay. The question is, any advice on helping a younger teenage sibling in a dysfunctional family system as an older sibling who has left the household? Real situation. And so several things. One very often, the best thing you can do for a, a teenager in a not good situation that isn't going to change is to maximize as much as possible their access to resources outside of that family. And that might sound like a little abstract or pedantic, but it just means, for example, encouraging their own interests, finding ways to help them be successful in ways that are, that are close to their own heart, particularly if they're struggling to be successful in other areas, like with friends or with academics, if there are any kind of physical limitations, disabling conditions, you know, if there are any kind of constraints, looking for where a person can be successful. A lot of research shows that one of the main factors that helps teenagers come through really bad situations is a healthy relationship with at least one other person, typically an adult, an older adult mentor, but it's also important to have good friends. You know, and my own situation, I have a brother who's eight and a half years younger, and, and I went out of my way when I was in my early 20s to enable him to live with us, where I lived as a outside of, after college over the whole summer, and I did a lot of things with him to kind of give him things that were outside of his uh, very rocky relationship mm-hmm. at the time with my parents. And so things like that, I would, I would say those things. Be aware also of limitations of your influence, do what you can to nudge the family system, but you probably don't have much power there. One thing you can do to finish in the extreme, this is an extreme. Most people don't know you can do this. If you think that something could really be problematic, you can call Child Protective Services anonymously. You don't have to use your name. The call probably will be recorded. Give thought to that. But really, you know, in a normal range, just you can call them up for advice. It's like, hey, is this child abuse or should I be worried about this? Or what do you think? And these are people who are really good at it usually. They've seen all kinds of stuff. They can read between a lot of lines and they can give you some guidance about the range of, well, this sucks, but you know, it's not legal child abuse and it's it's not a situation where we ought to investigate on an anonymous tip and something like that. But on the other hand, you know, in the extreme, if it's getting really weird and particularly if you're uh if you have a concern that your sibling is a danger to themselves, it's just really important to take that seriously. Yeah, no, I think that was fantastic advice, Dad. Something to to name that's a little complicated, and all of this is driven by situation. How yeah. dysfunctional are we talking about here? Yeah. It, and, and it's it's hard to answer that from fifty thousand feet, you know, through an email. 
But if it is a system where this is possible, you are generally going to have more influence over the system the closer you are to it. And there's a balance there, right? Because you don't want to make yourself crazy if you're dealing with a crazy system. And on the other hand, let's say that we're in a situation where you are, say, in your early 20s or you're off at college or you're a little post-college and you have a sibling, it's a teenage here who's like 13, 14 years old, your your parents have legal jurisdiction over that over that kid. And they're going to be a lot more willing to let them spend summer break with you if you have a relationship with your parents that is at least on speaking terms, if not, yeah. you know, a little bit better than that. So it's a factor to consider here, which is essentially like, what are you willing to compromise on in terms of the emotional weight that you take on or the things that you have to roll your eyes on, but keep your mouth shut about in order to maintain a relationship with them that allows you to have access to the system that could have the result of helping your sibling out. And that is such a personal question that I cannot possibly answer it for you, but it's something to kind of think about that there's a dance there. And, and it's an unfortunate reality that you know you might have to take on the discomfort of closeness a little bit if you really want to be able to deliver maximum help. And it's totally up to you how you want to balance that closeness and that distance with the amount of influence that you'll be able to have. I think it's maybe just worth offering a little bit of clinical risk assessment. So yeah, basically, please. the more that a person, including a young person, an adolescent, the more that they have first some area in which they're successful. Mm -hmm. They're a great skateboarder. They're cool with graffiti. They are getting A's in school. Some area of success. They're an athlete in some way, in addition to being a they skateboarder. They have a couple of really good friends that they feel That's very the second thing. With. That's okay, the second yeah. thing. Friend. Do they have one good friend? Mm -hmm. And then third, are they fairly well-regulated, not impulsive? Some emotional tools, yeah. Yeah. To the extent that a person, a teenager, doesn't have any area of success, is socially isolated, and is impulsive, those are risk factors. The last thing I want to suggest that often is a really good intervention is to get another adult involved in that kid's life, like a therapist. Teacher at school who you know yeah. is cool. Or a therapist, you know, whatever. a yeah. real therapist. Or, or a therapist. Yeah, ideally. licensed yeah. therapist. Totally. Because then that therapist starts having influence in the family system in almost all states, certainly in, I think, California. I might flunk the licensing exam on this question right now. I think it's at age 14, but at a, at a certain age, parents in many states, certainly in California, cannot forbid a kid from seeing a therapist. Mm, mm -hmm. They can't. And the therapist doesn't have to tell the parents anything, particularly if it involves sex, drugs, or risk to self, or in the therapist's judgment. They can keep the parents entirely out of it. That may not be clinically indicated, but you know they have the right to do that. So that's a major step. And in calmer... <laughs> hopefully calmer, you know, more mid-range or normal range uh, type situations. You know, that therapist is just a place who can be an advocate. That's someone who can advocate for the child with the parents. That was my primary role when I was seeing teenagers, you know, because the kid was fine. <laughs> it was the parents who needed to kind of clean up their act a little bit or to understand things or strike a deal with the kid where they got out of their hair as long as the kid would satisfy their understandable needs for safety, you know, 
safety concerns the parents had about the, the life of their child. So my point is that would be another major thing, to somehow just get your younger sibling to go see a therapist, maybe even talk with the parents that it would be really helpful if the kid saw a therapist. Nothing wrong with the child, nothing wrong with the family. More like, oh, just someone to learn social-emotional skills probably will help their academic performance. Come up with some believable rationale for it. But <laughs> get that kid connected to an adult ally who has some clout in the system. That's really useful too. Yeah, and the the reason that I said like uh, a cool teacher there, if one is available, yeah. I mean, obviously from like a clinical standpoint, working with a therapist would be ideal. For a lot of people in systems like that, there are going to be major cost considerations, particularly yeah. if the parents are not supportive of treatment. Yeah. Thankfully, there are low cost options. There, phone counseling, there are free hotlines. Phone counseling, yeah. hotlines. There are therapists who take insurance, although they are sometimes difficult to access for a variety of complicated reasons. And that is definitely a whole different podcast episode. But yeah, I just want to flag that like, hey, therapist is optimal, but if you can't go to therapist, is there some other adult in the system? Yeah, with high schools have counselors. Yeah, high school counselor, totally. Yeah, great example, great example. Two more things. First, love the heck out of your sibling. Affirm them, remind them that they're in a presumably not great situation, but they themselves are great. Mm. make a distinction between a tough situation you know, that the kid has got to deal with and kind of get through, and there are only a couple more years of it probably. That's totally different from who they are. So be really loving and affirming yourself. Second, to the extent you can, there are tremendous online resources now for social, emotional skills, mindfulness for teenagers, self-compassion for teenagers. Communities of people who are affected in this kind of a way, totally, yeah. Yeah, who are grappling with similar issues. Yep. Reach out for skillfulness. The rockier your environment is, the more important it is to build up the good inside yourself and learning how to manage your reactions, learning how to see things more clearly, how to understand parents maybe who've got an issue with drugs and alcohol or maybe come from a different culture than your own culture as a kid in America. Whatever the issue might be, you know, there are things it would be so helpful to learn. Man, if I could go back in time <laughs> to me in junior high and high school and just sort of drill in about 20 minutes of this podcast, Forrest, <laughs> uh, it would have been really good for that character 50 plus years ago. Yeah, well, I think that that's a great note to end today's episode on. We did as good a job as we could with all of the questions with the and the distance we have from them and the time that we had. If you want to send in a question to be answered on the show, you can email me at contact at beingwellpodcast.com or you can follow us on Patreon. We would prefer that. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. I think it might be just slash beingwell, but it's one of those. I'll have a link to it in the description of today's episode. And before we do a mailbag episode, I always put a question in there. Hey, if you have any questions, now's the time to send them in. And sometimes also we'll ask for new questions on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all of the places that you would expect. And if you would like, you can send a question in there as well. Rick and I always love recording the mailbag episodes. There's something about them where because we're dealing with real questions from real people, they feel, well, a lot more real than the sometimes kind of theoretical stuff that we engage in a lot on the podcast. And it's just really touching to know that there is somebody listening to us 
who is dealing with this actual problem, and we're doing our best to contribute in some way to help them through it. And there's just something about that that always feels really great to do. And these episodes work as well as they do because uh, we have phenomenal listeners. And I'm not just trying to pump you up. You know, we get incredible questions from people that are so detailed and so nuanced and just like have so much in them. And it's always a lot of fun to unpack them. It's also always a little tricky to do a recap of the mailbag episodes because we talk about so many different things in the course of them. But what I'm going to try to do here is go through the different questions that we talked about and just give you a couple of headlines on each one. So our first question was about a situation where somebody is developing more personal skills, more internal skills, more mindfulness, more capacity, and they feel like it is actually causing them to repress their authentic emotions because expressing emotions like fear and anger gets a really bad rap, and they're trying to take the high road with other people and not lash out in those ways. And what we focused on for this question is the idea of being at choice about your behavior. The whole point of practice is to make us more free, not more constrained. So if you feel like your practice is making you more constrained, well, that's a place of inquiry. Now, at the same time, as you become more self-aware, you will naturally cultivate more attentiveness toward your internal moods, and you'll become more and more able to identify those moods as they're appearing, and you'll be able to label emotions and do things like, oh, that's anger, oh, that's sadness, and then you'll be at choice about whether or not you want to express them with other people. And this could naturally cause somebody, the first time that they're going through this, to be like, oh, I'm I'm feeling all of these emotions, I'm experiencing all of these things, and, and I'm not saying them. Does that mean that I'm repressing? And maybe it does, or maybe it just means that you're a little bit more self-aware these days, and you're you're more aware of the kind of transitory movement of these emotions through you without really identifying with them. So either could be happening here. Another question was about personal responsibility in the context of people being the sum total of all of the things that happened to them through the course of their lives. And if that's the case, how can we hold people accountable? And we tried to stay away from too much determinism talk with this one because that can bog down pretty quickly and focused on the idea that, hey, let's just accept as a premise that people have a degree of free will here. If that's the case, that free will is still absolutely constrained by all of the experiences that a person went through, all of the things that happened to them, their circumstance in life, their level of privilege, you know, whatever. And it's incredibly important that we take all of that into account and that we appreciate it and appreciate the impact of it. Then there was a question about self-worth and defining ourselves through our successes, our accomplishments. Uh, The thing that I wanted to highlight here is that accomplishment in general is kind of illusory. We can feel extremely accomplished for doing something that is really a very simple task and not very accomplished after we achieve something that we've been grinding toward for years and years. And Rick highlighted here the importance of focusing on self-worth rather than self-esteem. A self-esteem can be accomplishment-driven, but self-worth is typically more driven by a appreciation of beingness just in general, that people are beings and therefore they are worthy, and how increasingly we can, we can see our own beingness and also see the beingness of other people, and we can start to view ourselves as we would maybe a friend. Often people are a lot more forgiving for the behavior of their friends than they are their own behavior. Some people slant the other way, but most people tend to be a little bit more self-critical than they are critical of others. 
And this includes people who are very critical of other people. It can sometimes mean that they have a very harsh inner critic. It's not always true, but it can often be true. And so in this kind of funny process, sometimes by being more accepting of other people, we can become more accepting of ourselves over time. Then we had a question about age gaps in relationships and whether or not it's possible for there to be a healthy relationship that has a considerable age gap. To sum that up, we said, yes, it is absolutely possible to have a healthy relationship with a big age gap, but it comes with a lot more questions and concerns and boxes to check and things just to make sure of in order to ensure that you're in really a a healthy and supportive situation for you long-term. If everyone's getting their needs met, everyone's a consenting adult, everyone is going in eyes wide open, clearly seeing what's going on here, hey, you know, that could be a very healthy and supportive relationship for you. And then what I want to highlight at the end here that we actually didn't talk about during the episode itself was to make sure that what you're basing the relationship on isn't totally transitory. For example, there were several relationships in my friend group that changed when we entered uh, COVID and quarantine because they were founded on dancing. There were two people who just really liked going dancing together. And so when dancing wasn't a thing anymore, the relationship really had no foundation to stand on. In much the same way, you could be in a relationship right now that is essentially founded on this difference in age between the partners. And then as the partnership ages together, Well, the dynamics could really change there. All of a sudden, there are other things that are coming up as important for the two people, or maybe they're bringing different things to the table than they were in the past. And again, this can all totally work out. It does happen. It's totally possible. It's just a situation where you want to make sure that you're checking all the boxes and you're asking all the questions and you're really going into it very clearly and everyone's on the same page about what's going on here. Then we were asked another question about being in a relationship with somebody over a long period of time. And for this one, I wanted to really highlight relating to the other person as an ongoing process as opposed to in an individual person. And a big part of that is allowing yourself to be flexible in how you view them and be flexible in your attachment to all of the water that flows under the bridge of the relationship. To make this a little bit more concrete, you can go through a deliberate process of asking somebody, hey, how are you different now than you were back then? What do you care about differently today than you did two or three or 10 years ago? You know, what do I need to update in my understanding of you to make this relationship really work? Then we had a question about being driven by a trauma history to feel like you need to constantly be accomplished or to achieve different kinds of things. And a big part of that question was the fear of never measuring up. And one of the things that we talked about a bit at the end of it, a metaphor that I kind of liked, is that in the wagon of who we are, we've got maybe a healthy horse and a neurotic horse that are both pulling the wagon. And as long as they're kind of going in the same direction, it's okay to have a neurotic horse be present. Like, that's part of life, right? A big part of the process is becoming a normal neurotic, not becoming a perfectly enlightened person. And the trick is, over time, you want to incline more and more and more, put more and more weight behind the healthier of the two horses. And one of the ways counterintuitively to do that is actually by kind of feeding the hungry bee a little bit. Rick talked about identifying experiences that would really feed and soothe that more neurotic aspect of who he was and deliberately pursuing them. 
And then if and when he achieved them, to really take them into himself and to allow them to soothe himself, to really make them a part of who he was, and to have that function as what's called in, I hope I'm using this lingo correctly, called in therapy a corrective emotional experience. Then finally, we close the conversation with a question that focused on helping a younger sibling in a dysfunctional family. And I really loved everything that Rick said to this one. And one of the things that he highlighted at the end was three things that can be really important for a person. First, feeling like you are good at something, feeling a sense of accomplishment, like you can be agent, like there is something that the person does well. Second thing, having a degree of social support. And then third thing, developing some internal skills. And to the extent that you as the person external to the the dysfunctional situation can help the person inside of it develop those three things, that's really going to help them out long term. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I am running out of voice for this one. It was a lot of talking today. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Follow us on YouTube. You can find me as Forrest Hansen. And again, as a reminder, if you want to send in a question to be answered, the best way to do that is by joining us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.